Thank you, Jim. Good morning, all. Let's pray as we begin this morning. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the wonderful privilege we have that we have the very Word of God. And Lord, we have this privilege that we can take advantage of day by day, that we can take advantage of on Sunday mornings when your Word is preached. We do pray, Heavenly Father, that your Word would speak loudly and clearly to each of our hearts today, that our hearts would be open to all that you would have. In Jesus' name, amen. Now, if this morning were the conclusion of a two-part TV program rather than a two-part sermon, you might hear something like this. Emma, blinded by a blindfold. And Andrew, also blinded. Facing incredible obstacles as they made their way across the stage at TCF. Will they make it? So there you go, huh? Those of you who weren't here last week, that made no sense at all, but that's okay. We're going to catch you up here. Purpose of an introduction like this to a multi-part TV program is to remind those who didn't see the previous episode what happened and to bring those who didn't see it at all up to speed. Well, this isn't a TV program, but it is part two of a two-part message this morning. And for those of you who have slept since last Sunday, I hope that includes all of you, or maybe slept through last Sunday's sermon, hope that doesn't include as many as I think it might, and perhaps have forgotten some of what we looked at then, as well as for those slackers among us who weren't here last Sunday, I think it's important that we recap some key points, okay? Because our brains leak, Gordon has been fond of saying, and because that's true, even if you were here last Sunday, you might have forgotten some things. We're looking at the biblical idea of being in the world, but not of it. And that's best illustrated in Scripture by Jesus' prayer in John chapter 17, where he prayed in John 17, I have given them your word, and the world has hated them because they are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. I do not ask that you take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. They are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. Sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. As you sent me into the world, so I have sent them into the world. In part one last Sunday, we looked at the second part of this idea first, how we must guard against being of the world or worldly, and why that's such an important thing for us as Christians in our Christian life, because Jesus said we are not of the world. As believers, as Christians, we are supposed to be in him and not of the world. We explored Jesus' own words in Luke chapter 6, verse 39, where he said, Can a blind man lead a blind man? Will they not both fall into a pit? That's what the illustration was at the beginning last Sunday when we had Emma blindfolded and we have Andrew blindfolded, and they tried to lead each other kind of across the stage. We examined that passage to help us illustrate that you are not of the that excuse me, that if you are of the world, if you're of the world, if the world overly influences your attitudes, your perspective, your behavior, you are essentially blind. 
and you're likely, because you're blind, to fall into a pit. It's a dangerous thing for anybody to be of the world. And that's why Jesus gave us this clear warning in Luke chapter 6 about the blind leading the blind. That's also why Jesus prayed in John 17, that even though God wouldn't just lift us out of the world immediately, he did ask the Father to protect us from the evil one. So part one was an essential introduction to this morning's message because being of the world means we're bound to go into a pit. And in a spiritual pit, we cannot be effective ambassadors of Christ. So being in the world, but not of the world, means we must go into the world. That's the subtitle of this morning's part two of our message today, In Not Of, Into the World. After all, that's the Great Commission, isn't it? Go into all the world. Yet, if you can see, if your spiritual vision is well-maintained, if your spiritual vision is very healthy, the world is still a dangerous place. But in Christ, with the word that he left us, we can see the pitfalls in the things of the world. We can avoid falling into these pits of the world so long as we maintain our spiritual vision to the point that we can see clearly where we're going. In other words, as long as we allow the word of God to be that lamp to our feet, and light to our path, the closing scripture that we used last week. So with that, as a recap of last week and an introduction to this week, we have to recognize that Jesus prayed in his prayer in John 17 two very specific things about being in the world. First, he prayed, my prayer is not that you take them out of the world, but that you protect them from the evil one. And then he prayed, as I I'm sorry, as you, praying to the Father, Jesus said, as you sent me into the world, I have sent them, his disciples, and by extrapolation through the centuries, sent us into the world. So even recognizing the danger, after all, Jesus prayed that God would protect them from the evil one. Why would we need protection if there were no hazards? But even recognizing that, Jesus clearly meant for us to be in the world. In fact, we're not just left here as an afterthought. We're sent into the world. God's plan was not to remove the disciples or to remove us from danger and opposition. In other words, to take us out of the world, but to preserve us in the midst of challenges, in the midst of conflict. How does he preserve us? Well, the first way we've already looked at, One way is by helping us see. He helps us see. He left us his word so we can see. And we can see clearly. But the truth is there's still an undeniable and unavoidable tension that exists with this whole idea of being in the world but not of it. If we decide we're going to be in the world without being careful to not be of the world, we run the risk of shipwrecking our faith. Or to use Jesus' word picture in Luke chapter 6, falling into a pit. If we decide we're not going to be of the world and as a result we completely isolate ourselves for our own spiritual protection, we run the risk of, well, maybe having our faith remain intact, but being largely useless in something else Jesus said of us elsewhere. We are to be his witnesses. 
we're to be his witnesses. How can we do that if we're not in the world? How can we testify to his saving grace if we're completely isolated from the world for our own protection? Unfortunately, folks, this is a reality. There's no way out of this tension if we want to do both, if we want to be in the world, in fact, as we are sent into the world, and we also want to not be of the world. We must be in the world to be effective ministers of the gospel of Jesus Christ. We also must not be of the world to protect our faith, to keep ourselves spiritually safe, and to be truly effective ministers of his grace and witnesses to his love. We must recognize this tension between these two seemingly opposite things, and we have to seek to find God's straight and narrow path through this tension. There's a writer and radio host named Dick Staub, no relation to Steve, in the introduction to his book, Too Christian, or I'm sorry, Too Pagan, Too Christian. And he writes this, For followers of Jesus, this volatile world poses a grave threat. When living counter to culture, Christians are despised and hated by the world. When confronting, I'm sorry, when conforming to culture, Christians risk succumbing to the seductive desires of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of riches. Most of us know people who jettison their faith for the momentary pleasures of this age. And all of us experience some sometimes give in to the kinds of temptations that, if unchecked, lead to the contamination of our spirit. And he goes on to point out the different ways that Christians respond to this tension that we're looking at. Some totally withdraw into kind of a fortress to protect themselves. Think about it. That's kind of how Muslims respond to lust. They rather than deal with the hard attitude that let's just cover up all the women from head to toe and then their ankles won't entice men to sin, right? That's how they deal with it. Total withdrawal, isolate, build this fortress. You could also draw parallels to the Amish. Isolate, withdraw. Don't be involved in the culture because culture is difficult. The other response some believers have is to just conform. Well, the world is what it is. We can't change it. And we look weird if we try to resist it, so let's just be chameleons. Let's look like the world. Let's just get along. Of course, neither of these are very good responses for the one who wants to truly do what Jesus prayed about here, to be in the world and to be not of the world. Though there are many times and places where we do, and in fact maybe must withdraw to protect ourselves, though there may be times when it's appropriate to fight the good fight in maybe some specific culture war issues, though we don't want to needlessly look weird because our faith alone makes us weird enough, these responses are not enough. That's because even though being of the world has great potential to shipwreck our faith, it doesn't have to. It doesn't have to. Why? Because we're in Him. Because we're in Him. And even more relevant to going into the world, think about this. The very differences that the Holy Spirit shapes in us, shapes in our character, shapes in our obedient choices to the Word of God, shapes in the way we choose to live our lives. It presents a very stark and amazing and positive contrast to the world. It gives us opportunities to share our faith with others, even if they have to come up and say, why are you so weird? Why are the things you believe so weird? Why are the ways you choose to live your life so weird? Our society is unraveling before our very eyes. 
Yet this sea change in our culture is also producing, I believe, many spiritually restless or even empty people. And each one of those people needs the good news of the transforming and saving grace of Jesus. Dick Staub again. In my observation, most Christians are either too Christian or too pagan. The Christians who are too Christian are very comfortable within the Christian subculture, but are ill at ease when in the world. On the other hand, Christians who are too pagan are at ease with the world, but fail to integrate their faith into their everyday life. Isn't that true? Don't you see that? How do we bring light into the darkness of their world? As God's instruments, we must illuminate the world for unbelievers. We must shine a light onto the pits into which they can fall. Remember, they're spiritually blind, and we're not, or at least we're not supposed to be, because we have and because we believe his word. How can we warn them of these pits unless we see those pits too? And we see those pits for what they are. And thinking about our demonstration last week when we had Emma and Andrew up on stage here blindfolded trying to make their way across the stage. Remember that Emma, who was blind and supposedly leading the way, she couldn't see she was getting ready to bump into things any more than Andrew could. He was just as blind. So what happened? Some of you shouted instructions at them. Oh, look out for this. Move this way. Move that way, right? Giving them directions, helping them to avoid bumping into things. Think of this. If you were out in the foyer or you were in another room or upstairs, you couldn't have done that, could you? Better still, you could have, if I had let you, it would have ruined my demonstration, but if I had let you, you could have taken the two blind people by the hand and you could have walked them through the hazards using your sight to help them see, using your sight in essence to remove some of the hindrances of their blindness. Think about this. You cannot effectively do that from a distance. You can't do that from another room. You have to enter into the space of a blind person. But as we noted, you first have to be able to see. We're talking about engagement with our culture, but more specifically than our culture as just a general kind of thing, we're talking about engagement with individuals in relationship with them and understanding the culture that influences them. No doubt the Apostle Paul felt this very same tension between being in the world and not of the world as he traveled through much of the known world of his day. He lived in a culture that was, shall we say, hostile to the Christian faith, just like ours. Actually, way more so. He lived in a culture that worshipped idols, just like ours. Again, probably more so, though our idols aren't stone objects anymore, and they worshipped other kinds of idols as well. We're going to look now at Acts chapter 17, verses 16 through 34, beginning with the first verse of this uh, section of Scripture. It says, while Paul was waiting for them in Athens, he was greatly distressed to see that the city was full of idols. That's my reaction too some days when I read the news or I just look around at our world. I see our city, our state, our nation, our world full of idols. Sexual sins are perhaps the most glaring example, but we could just as easily cite things like materialism, 
selfishness, many other things that are modern-day idols. And let's remember, idols are things that we worship instead of God. And yes, these things I just mentioned are truly idols in our culture. And yes, because the world is blind to this reality, they do worship these things. They are ultimate things. That's why they're idols. They're ultimate. So we continue with Paul in Athens, picking up again in verse 17 of uh, Acts chapter 17. So he reasoned in the synagogue with the Jews and the God-fearing Greeks, as well as in the marketplace day by day with those who happened to be there. A group of Epicurean and Stoic philosophers began to dispute with him. Some of them asked, what is this babbler trying to say? Others remarked, he seems to be advocating foreign gods. They said this because Paul was preaching the good news about Jesus and the resurrection. Then they took him and brought him to a meeting of the Areopagus, where they said to him, may we know what this new teaching is that you are presenting? You are bringing some strange ideas to our ears, and we want to know what they mean. All the Athenians and the foreigners who lived there spent their time doing nothing but talking about and listening to the latest ideas. Paul then stood up in the meeting of the Areopagus and said, Men of Athens, I see that in every way you are very religious. For as I walked around and looked carefully at your objects of worship, I even found an altar with this inscription, To an unknown God. Now what you worship is something unknown I am going to proclaim to you. The God who made the world and everything in it is the Lord of heaven and earth and does not live in temples built by hands. And he is not served by human hands as if he needed anything because he himself gives all men life and breath and everything else. From one man he made every nation of men that they should inhabit the whole earth and he determined the times set for them and the exact places where they should live. God did this so that men would seek him and perhaps reach out for him and find him, though he is not far from each one of us. For in him we live and move and have our being. As some of your own poets have said, we are his offspring. And then jumping down to verse 32 of this section, we read, when they heard about the resurrection of the dead, some of them sneered. But others said, we want to hear you again on this subject. At that, Paul left the council. A few men became followers of Paul and believed. Among them was Dionysius, a member of the Areopagus, also a woman named Damaris, and a number of others. So what's the first thing we notice in this passage of Scripture about Paul's response to his culture here in Athens, to the focal point of Greek intellect and culture, which is what Athens was? It says that Paul was provoked by what he saw, says one version. It says the idolatry of the city greatly distressed him. It bothered him a lot. When you look at our culture, when you look at the idolization reflected in our culture, the idolization of money, the idolization of material things, the idolization of self-satisfaction, the idolization of sexual pleasure, I can almost picture the Apostle Paul walking around Manhattan or San Francisco, or L.A., or you know what? Maybe just watching a TV show or a movie here in Tulsa, Oklahoma. I can imagine Paul seeing the idols in our culture. I can see Paul walking around these places or watching TV and having a similar response as he did walking around Athens, being greatly distressed, being thoroughly provoked. 
Now, Paul could have taken the approach that some believers take. He could have noted, you know what? This atmosphere is not conducive to my holiness. And of course, he would have been right. As a result, he could have determined that he would totally separate himself from these things so as not to contaminate his spirit. Now, let me say that sometimes that's exactly what needs to happen. Sometimes that's exactly what needs to happen. How do we know when? How do we know when that needs to happen and when it doesn't necessarily need to happen? We know because we can see. We know because we have his word. He left us his word so we can see. And if we know that our spiritual eyesight is healthy and we're honest about ourselves, we know what we can and cannot do safely. We talked about that last week. Have somebody else give you this spiritual eye test because it's hard sometimes for us to be honest with ourselves. So there is a time. There is a time for completely avoiding such idolatry. And I'd have to say that there are some things that Christians should probably never do. But Paul, rather than isolating himself or separating himself completely from this cultural atmosphere of idolatry, he chose to enter it. He chose to step right into it. He entered it with a purpose. He entered it with understanding about exactly what he was dealing with and exactly what he was doing and what his purpose was. For example, when I watch Star Trek movies or TV shows, I know all about the humanistic worldview that I'm entering. When I watch a movie like Avatar, I understanding, my understanding is that they're teaching me about pantheism. I know that. I see that. I go into it. When I go in to watch Fox News, I'm seeing a conservative viewpoint on the news. I know that. If I'm watching MSNBC, I know I'm seeing a liberal viewpoint on the news. I know that. I take these things into account and go into such encounters with our culture with my spiritual eyes wide open and to a large degree on guard. Paul entered the culture of Athens with his spiritual eyes wide open. The art of Athens was a reflection of its worship, just like our art including TV and movies, music and other art forms, is a reflection of what our culture worships. That's what greatly distressed Paul, because that was very clear to him. Paul started much as he did in other places. First, what he did is he went into the synagogue, and he preached about Jesus there. But then, this passage tells us, he went into the marketplace. What is our marketplace? Our marketplace might be our neighborhoods. It might be our families, it might be our schools, it might be our workplace. The word for marketplace in verse 17 can mean town square. Hasn't TV been called our national town square? Have you ever heard that? It has been. It's the place where ideas are presented and debated, where dialogue about life takes place in story settings or in news or things like that. Paul went there. He went there. And after he went there, even though he was greatly distressed, probably even grieved at what he saw was clearly the idolatrous spirit of Athens, what did he do? He reasoned with them. That's what Scripture tells us. He reasoned with them. The Greek word used here in verse 17 is the word from which we get our English word, dialogue. Dialogue. Boy, that's missing from our culture now. All we do is shout past each other. Jim and I were just talking about that this morning based on an experience. We shout past. There's no dialogue. Dialogue means you're talking and I listen to you and I try to hear what you're saying and then I'm talking and we may, we may disagree, but it's dialogue. That's what Paul did. 
He talked to them about these things, and he did it in a winsome way. But how was this dialogue received? Well, it was immediately disputed, and they insulted Paul too. They called him a babbler. Anybody here want to be called a babbler? We'd probably take that as an insult, and it was, because we think of a babbler as a person who goes on and on about something like that preacher standing up here. And it might also imply that they're not making sense. We might also have that meaning for babbler. But the original language here actually means worse than that. It means worse. It literally means seed picker, like a bird that jumps from place to place picking up leftover seeds on the ground. These people insulted Paul by accusing him of being what one definition noted, a gatherer and retailer of scraps of knowledge, a general term of contempt for any pretended teacher. It describes someone who, like a bird picking up seeds, took some learning here and some there and passed it off as his own. So Paul was insulted. He didn't feel insulted, but he was being insulted. In many ways, Paul was already being dismissed even before he was fully heard. That can happen to us too, can it? Can't that happen to us too? Others made it clear that he was saying things completely foreign to their thinking, completely foreign to their experiences. Don't we feel that way sometimes? Like we're talking another language to people who literally know nothing of Christ? Well, Paul could have had different reactions to this original kind of response to his message. He could have shrugged his shoulders and said, well, I tried, didn't get anywhere. But there was among those who heard him a group described this way in uh, verse 21 of Acts 17. All the Athenians and the foreigners who lived there spent their time doing nothing but talking about and listening to the latest ideas. So the word for latest ideas here means, according to Robertson's word pictures, literally something newer or fresher than the new, the very latest. You know what one of the most used words in advertising is? New. New. It's new. Our culture is drawn to new things, isn't it? It's drawn to new ideas. Often, these new ideas aren't really new at all, but they're repackaged to sound new or they're new to this person, so they think it's original, right? But somebody will listen. Because that was true in Athens, Paul gained a hearing. And here we have the essence of what is Paul's, perhaps his most famous, famous sermon, at least the most famous sermon he ever delivered to pagans. What we see here are some key principles for being in the world and for engaging our culture. One of those key principles is bridge building versus wall building. Paul was definitely not a fire and brimstone preacher here in this setting. He could have pounded his pulpit, couldn't he? But he didn't. He didn't do that here. He began by complimenting them in sort of a backhanded way, admittedly, but in a way that allowed him to gain a fuller hearing. He told the group that he could see that they were very religious. That didn't mean that he agreed with them. He could have called them a bunch of heathen, idol-worshiping pagans, and he would have been right. But he would have lost his audience altogether. Isn't that what we see happening in our national dialogue? It's not a dialogue. We're losing our audience because we're talking past each other, and we're losing our audience. In our culture, there's a lot of people who are very, quote-unquote, spiritual. So recognizing that, think about this, in our relationship with unbelievers, we can build a bridge rather than build a wall. 
that can allow us to get a fuller hearing. Another key principle for being in the world is knowing the language. Now, in a foreign mission setting, if you're in China, you better know Chinese. You have to speak the language before you can communicate anything with clarity about the gospel. Now, I believe in our culture, we Christians often don't even speak the language of our culture. I'm not talking about simple words. I'm talking about ideas. I'm talking about forms of communication. Sometimes we're even talking about art. Note that Paul quoted two Greek poets in this passage in Acts chapter 17. He apparently quoted from Epimenides. He was a poet from Crete. And Paul also quoted him later in Titus 1.12. And here he said, For in him we live and move and have our being. Now that's part of Scripture now because, Paul, because God directed Paul to speak that and it was recorded in Scripture, but it was originally a Cretan poet. Isn't that interesting? So we can affirm that in him we live and move and have our being. We even have a worship song that sings that. But where did that phrase first come from? It came from a pagan poet. Isn't that interesting? Also, Paul quoted the poet Eratus from Paul's homeland where, when he said, we are his offspring. So in recognizing this use of popular culture by Paul, Bible commentator Matthew Henry wrote this. He wrote, by this, it appears not only that Paul himself was a scholar, but that human learning is both ornamental and serviceable to a gospel minister, especially for convincing of those who are outside. For it enables him to beat them at their own weapons and to cut off Goliath's head with his own sword. How can the adversaries of truth be beaten out of their strongholds by those who do not know them? So here we have a respected, a very... A theologically conservative Christian commentator. My goodness, Matthew Henry was a Puritan. You know that? And he says that human learning about culture is ornamental to the gospel. He's saying that our understanding of culture, which in our case would, inc- would include not just poetry, but maybe other arts and performing arts of the day, things like music or television or movies or literature, that our understanding, as believers, our understanding of these things our ability to speak intelligently about them can be a tool by which we adorn the gospel. Now, I've seen some who dismiss this story in Acts 17 as one of Paul's failures. After all, it does say in the last verse of this passage that only a few believed. So what about these results recorded in Athens? Only a few came to believe. We know that sometimes that may be the result of our efforts in our relationships and engaging our culture as well. But what we don't have is a record of what happened later. What happened with those few who believed? We don't know. What was the result of those seeds that Paul planted? Those who said, we want to hear you again on this subject. And besides, think about this too. Even if only a few believed and it never went any further than that, was it still not worth it? Was it still not worth it? Is our seeing the results immediately a requirement for us to even try? Paul was speaking to a culture much like our own. Some will sneer or mock at what we say or how we live our lives. Some will say, I'll hear you again on this. They're open to dialogue. And others will believe. The first, that mocking already happens whether or not we engage the culture. 
it's already happening. We don't have to make efforts to engage the culture for people to mock believers. You know what they think when we say, I believe in the resurrection? I believe a dead man lives again and rose into heaven? Huh? They think that's just foolishness. Do you know the most offensive thing we believe? In the beginning, God created. Because everything else flows from that. That's offensive to our culture. They mock that. So people will mock and sneer at Christians in what we believe. But the second two, the I will hear you again on this and, and those who will believe, we could see those as more positive results. They won't happen at all unless we engage with individuals in our culture, unless we make the effort. So I believe what we have here in Acts is part of our look at what it means to be in the world. We have one model here. It's certainly not the only model, okay? I'm not saying this is the be-all and end-all of our engagement with unbelievers, but it's one model. But when we build relationships with our unbelieving co-workers, with our neighbors, with our families, with others, we can learn from Paul's approach here. We can build bridges. We can use examples. We can use language people understand, ideas people understand. We can look hard and work hard to establish common ground. We can look for points of entry. And then we can move people toward a decision for Christ. If Paul can use a pagan poet to make a point such that that point is now part of our scripture, why can't we use our movies? Now, I'm not saying that'll be part of scripture, so don't hear me say that. But if Paul can use a pagan poet to make his point, why can't we use our movies, our TV programs, our movies to make a point? How should we respond to the popularity of certain entertainment in our culture. We could dismiss it all as sinful and unbiblical. Or we could recognize the spiritual searching. We could recognize the spiritual emptiness or even the spiritual truths in at least some of these things and use it as a bridge in our relationships to people in our culture. Think about it. Joel did that just a couple weeks ago. You remember? He talked about the movie Sully, secular movie. He made a spiritual application, a spiritual point with that. We could use it as something of an example in our culture to affirm that some are at least asking the right questions or they have a portion of the truth. That's bridge building. And then maybe use that as an introduction to give the right answers like Paul did. Just as missionaries, to be effective, have to adapt to or at least be able to relate to the culture while being fully aware of everything that culture values, I believe in our post-Christian culture here in America, it's important we understand the messages that most Americans are getting from the media, which communicate most influentially, music, television, movies, etc., for example. Yet to carry that analogy just a little bit further, while missionaries must understand and be able to relate to and communicate in any given culture they're attempting to reach, they also cannot compromise their biblical standards. There's that tension again, isn't it? That we recognize at the beginning of this message. It's always there, and we must be always mindful of it. We cannot influence individuals or speak to their issues, their needs, their sins, unless we enter into their lives and understand the culture that informs their beliefs. Why do they believe that? We have to understand those things. And enter our culture, we must. 
because as Jesus prayed, we have been sent into the world. Many of you know missionary author and statesman Don Richardson. He actually preached here at TCF in a missions conference once several years ago. He talked about what he called the eye-opener. You remember that? It's what he calls his redemptive analogy thesis. The idea that each culture has some story, ritual, or tradition that can be used to illustrate and apply the Christian gospel message. The general approach to other religions is to find common touch points and build bridges to them as opposed to seeing walls everywhere. That was the point of his book, Peace Child. Anybody read that book, Peace Child? That's where he introduced this idea, this culture that had this connecting point, this eye-opener, where he thought, he, he, there's no way, I can't, this is too different, this culture is too different. Do we feel that way sometimes now, even looking around? It's too different, we can't, God's there, folks. I remember the scripture he used when he preached here. It was Ecclesiastes chapter 3, verse 11. He has made everything beautiful in its time. He has also set eternity in the hearts of men. God has created a cultural bridge in every culture, in every person, so people can hear with understanding the gospel of Jesus Christ. You know what, folks? It's no surprise at all to God what's happening in our culture now. God is not taken aback. He's not saying, boy, I didn't see that coming. Not at all. And what's happening in our culture is no barrier to the gospel. We're just used to things being easier for the gospel. But if that's not true anymore, it still means there's no barrier to the gospel. It's our responsibility, by God's grace, to trust the Lord to help us find ways to bridge this culture gap that we as believers have with our culture and to be in the world but not of it. Amen? Thank you, Heavenly Father, for these tremendous admonitions in your word today. Father, we thank you first that your word helps us to see. And Lord, we pray that we'd know your word so well that we could see clearly everything that's around us. We could see clearly, Father, what's happening in our culture. We could see clearly what's happening in our own hearts. And Lord, we pray that we would be a people who are bridge builders and not wall builders. We would be a people who would know the language of our culture, not just for the sake of knowing things, not just for the sake of entertainment even, Father, but for the sake of sharing the gospel of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ with a world that deeply needs salvation, just like us. We need you, Lord. We need you to be in the world, Lord. You have sent us, and we recognize that commission, Lord. You have sent us. So, Lord, we do pray that even now you'd help us to think clearly about what it means for each of us as individuals to be in the world but not of the world. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.